39 in review. Today, the first in a new decade, the 1940s, Mutual Special Features Division presents an hour's program reviewing the outstanding news moments of the year 1939. Through the use of special recordings made by Mutual during the actual occurrence of those moments, we shall listen once again to the voices and the events that made the news of 1939. As the outstanding news analyst of radio's year, 1939, we present our narrator, Raymond Graham Swing. Good afternoon. During the coming hour, you and I are going to live through again some of the outstanding news events of the last year. The year as a whole was a war year. All the forces which had gathered in the 20 years before suddenly came to the stage of crisis with one ominous event after another until violent action was reached. For Americans, it was a year in which we tried to live our normal lives while we were deeply shaken by the events abroad. In contrast to the trend away from individual liberty abroad, America began the new year with an act which gave freedom to a man whom many had believed unjustly imprisoned. On July 22, 1916, a bomb had been thrown into a preparedness day parade in San Francisco. Ten were killed and forty injured. Tom Mooney, a labor leader, and others were arrested and convicted in what many believed was an unfair trial. In 1918, President Wilson commuted Mooney's death sentence to life imprisonment. And in the next 20 years, many attempts were made to obtain a new trial. Finally, California elected a governor who had promised that his first official act would be to free Mooney. On January 7, 1939, immediately after his inauguration, Governor Colbert Olson fulfilled that promise. Before a large public gathering in Sacramento, the governor gave the graying labor leader his freedom. Here's Mooney's reply. Is that nice? Back in 1917, when a jury filed into the courtroom, and I observed the form of that jury, who later became, who later, the knowledge came to me that he was a plant on the jury, and I observed him draw his finger across his throat, plainly indicating to the district attorney before they had an opportunity to sit in the jury box, that I was to be sentenced to death by their verdict. I remember the scenes that followed immediately. The judge set Saturday the following morning for sentence and motions, stepped from the bench quickly and went into his chambers. That was the signal for a almost reign of terror to ensue. The prosecution resting on the false foundation of a criminal conspiracy realized that they must establish in the minds of the people 
that this is a very dangerous man and he must be disposed of at all costs. And they did everything to provoke violence in that courtroom. I remember the screams and the cries of my poor old mother, my sister, my sister-in-law, and also the wife of my co-defendant and co-worker, Weinberg, as they were dragged literally from the courtroom by these police. The largest, the most bulky, huge policemen on the force, all of the district attorney's staff in the jury box before they enter the courtroom, lolling in the jury chairs and leering, sneering. At my loved ones, I know that that scene indicated my doom. I never forgot the statement made by one of my staunch champions following that occasion. He said, Tom Mooney was the calmest man in that room. With such drama, one of the most controversial incidents in the history of American labor finally came to an end. in January, news was made by an airplane, an airplane of peaceful pursuit, carrying passengers between New York and Bermuda. One afternoon, the wireless signals from this plane to its home base failed to come through. People knew it was down somewhere on the rough Atlantic. Listen now to an exclusive mutual interview as one of the survivors, First Officer Neil Richardson of the flying boat Cavalier, tells what happened after the wireless went dead. I, uh, well, we were quite excited, of course, and I'm not able to say just what happened. The ship hit the water very hard and sank quickly. It was very harrowing. One passenger was thrown down when the ship landed, and I think he was hit by the engine, and, uh, he was just semi-conscious. He and his wife were together, but he eventually died and was naturally abandoned. We stayed floating in one group and talked the situation over, and everyone was in pretty good shape, except the passenger who was damaged in the landing. And uh, as uh, night came on, Stuart Spence became slightly exhausted, well, very exhausted. He'd been busy helping the passengers and was without deserter. He eventually died. Fortunately, he died quietly, and I don't think he had any great pain. He just sank. Night came on, and we saw ships on two occasions, but they were apparently a few miles away. We shouted, but it was hopeless. And uh, we tried to keep up our spirits and held on to each other, and then the rainstorm came, and it was very cold. Some hours later, we saw other lights much closer. They kept dipping in the swells. The lights came closer and played over the water, but they didn't spot us. We waved and shouted. We counted one, two, three, and then we all gave a great shout. Then as the lights turned away, I 
personally felt rather desperate about it. And Chapman, the radio operator, and I swam together to the ship. We swam to the searchlights about half a mile, I should say, and Chapman got into the light's glare. The boat saw him and picked him up. Then in a minute they saw me and heaved me in, which was a very marvelous moment. This story of bravery, steadfastness, and helpfulness stirred the American people and gave many a man a sense of the goodness of his fellow beings. most revered and courageous leaders, Pope Pius XI. Many millions of every faith more. Catholics gathered from all over the world and traveled to the Vatican for the funeral services and the election of a new pope. Speculation was widespread over the election, for many cardinals were conceded a chance to succeed the late pope, and the world was eager to know who would be named. One morning from the Vatican balcony, mutual broadcasts the suddenly excited voice of a distant announcer calling the various radio stations of the world to stand by. goes out to the world in all languages. Assembled masses in the square beneath the Vatican become tense with excitement. On the balcony over their heads, a red-robed cardinal appears. He holds up his hands, and the multitudes become silent.
So the name of the new Pope, Cardinal Pacelli, was first heard by American listeners. had hardly been celebrated ten days later when the peace of Europe once again reverberated to the tramp of hobnailed boots. Since the Munich settlement of September 1938, peace had rested on a foundation which hardly could be called stable. Followers of Prime Minister Chamberlain and Premier Daladier defended the settlement and argued that appeasement of the have-not nations was the one way to a durable peace. Others attacked this policy on the ground that Munich had been a betrayal of principle in the face of threats. They argued that it could only lead to more threats and ever severer crises. To these critics, Mr. Chamberlain often defended the Munich Treaty in words much like the following. Gentlemen, I have never denied that the terms which I was able to secure at Munich were not those that I myself would have desired. But as I explained then, I had to deal with no new problem. This was something which had existed ever since the Treaty of Versailles. A problem that ought to have been solved long ago. Their statesmen of the last 20 years had taken broader and more enlightened views of their duties. Uh, it has become like a disease that has been long neglected. And a surgical operation was necessary to save the life of the patient. Ladies and gentlemen, after all, the first and the most immediate object of my visit was achieved. The peace of Europe was saved. And if it had not been for those visits, hundreds of thousands of families would today have been in mourning for the flower of Europe's best manhood. But Mr. Chamberlain and the other advocates of appeasement were in for a rude awakening, and it came one cold March day. Along the roads of what had been a free and proud Czechoslovakia sounded the tramp of German troops clumping along the highways of Moravia, Bohemia, and Slovakia. Before the echo had died, aggression had followed aggression. Polish troops had marched into Teschen, Hungarians into Carpathia, Italians into Albania. The Western democracies were forced to re-examine the method of Munich. Speaking to a world that hung on his every word, Chamberlain did what his critics had hoped for. He reversed the policy of appeasement. I feel bound to repeat... 
that while I am not prepared to engage this country by new unspecified commitments operating under conditions which cannot now be foreseen, yet no greater mistake could be made than to, than to suppose that because it believes war to be a senseless and a cruel thing, this nation has so lost its fiber that it will not take part to the utmost of its power. In resisting such a challenge, if it ever were made. Thus, once again, Europe was brought face to face with the possibility of war. And so began the test of nerves. Among the instruments of war is the submarine, deadly to its enemy, but at times vulnerable to itself. During the year, three nations lost submarines and men in accidents that need not have happened. Among them was America's Squalus, sunk off Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in one of those sudden tragedies that make glaring headlines. All eyes were focused on the rescue operations, and for two days the fate of those still alive in the hull of the sunken craft hung perilously in the balance. America watched and listened and waited as divers worked frantically against time. Then the afternoon following the accident, Mutual took its listeners to the rescue, rescue operations headquarters in Kittery, Maine, for what it believed would be another routine report by its announcer. The broadcast began slowly. They're a uh, pretty husky-looking group, but most of them are unshaven. And wait just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to stand by. Here comes a flash. Now, stay with me, please, just a moment. There's a great rush when these flashes come in. Ladies and gentlemen, did you get that flash? That's the most important flash, the one we've been waiting for. And Lieutenant Commander uh, is uh, reading it now, and I'm asking to read it once more. Will you read that louder again? Rescue chamber now starting up with seven members of Quayle's crew. That is the 12-18 standard time. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the first definite thing we've had from this rescue. It looks as though it's going to be a success. That was a statement which just came in here directly from the crew, and every man in here is rushing to a telephone. And so if it's a madhouse, I hope you'll bear with me that we kind of get this thing straightened out. That was, uh... Almost immediately following the rescue of half the crew of the Squalers, two other submarines sank, one belonging to England and one to France. With the menace of war hanging over the world, some people with arched eyebrows hinted at sabotage. Those suggestions were never proved. But now that war has come, 
our thought may well be with many unnamed submarines and unknown men who have since gone to the bottom without the benefit of the headlines that mark the sad and heroic story of the Squalus, the Thetis, and the Phoenix. Two happy events to America, the two spectacular and colorful fairs of San Francisco and New York. With President Roosevelt officially opening them both, they began a season during which Europe was tense with the war of nerves, and America was trying to ignore it. In a court of peace and other well-sounding areas of the fair, statesmen and leaders of all phases of international life gathered and spoke of goodwill and brotherly love. Day after day, the words poured out. And Americans with one ear toward Europe listened while they spoke. We do not want war, and we are actively working for peace. Nous sommes une nation pacifique. Nous ne désirons pas la guerre. Et nous cherchons vigoureusement la paix. Somos una nación pacifica. No queremos la guerra, y con toda nuestra fuerza buscamos la paz. Wir sind eine freundliche nation. Wir wollen keine there also was fun at the fairs, and millions of worried people managed to live their own lives and enjoy it. The new ranch, the aquacade, the midget village, the art shows, strange as it seems, all added up to a magnificent climax, covered in the amusement area at the New York Fair by a mutual announcer. Once again, we'll tell you, we're standing halfway up the steel girders of a parachute jump, looking at two people who are stuck 125 feet in the air in a parachute chair that won't go up and won't, won't go down. We've been here since half past 11 tonight, when the accident first happened, and it's now a quarter to five in the morning. Everybody's getting a little sleepy. The authorities here assure us that the man and woman stuck in the chair are perfectly safe. And it's only a matter of time before they're brought down. But everyone, everyone including the victims, are wondering how long that time will be. We notice the faces of the unfortunate couple. And they're deathly white. It's a terrible ordeal, hanging sideways in that chair. And for a long time, they've been keeping their eyes closed and biting their lips. Wondering, perhaps just how long their nerves can stand it. Uh, for five hours now, mechanics have been working to free that parachute. The crowd, crowd's now beginning to stir. Looks as though they're, they're ready to start lowering the chute. And maybe, maybe that final rescue attempt has arrived. Yes, yes, there go the motors. On, on and off, maybe you can hear them. They're lowering the free strands of the parachute by motor. And the stuck side with a rope. Hand over hand from the very top. Here they come now, down, down a few feet at a time. And the crowds who have stood here all night are cheering wildly. They're going to land, ladies and gentlemen. They're going to land. And this sensational story of the American area is about over. Unless we miss our guess, this is going to be the thrill of the year at the New York Fair. Aside from 
to this dramatic event in the amusement area, certainly one of the peak moments of the New York Fair was the visit made to it by King George and Queen Elizabeth of Great Britain. The royal visit had first been made to Canada before it came to the United States. In Washington, breaking all precedents, the King and Queen drove to the United States Capitol, once burned by the British, and there held a reception for the members of the American Congress. It was a memorable day, and listeners will not soon forget the radio description as the royal couple first arrived at the steps of the capital. Queen of England are approaching, ladies and gentlemen, at this historic moment, the capital building of the United States of America, once an English possession. The king has his hat off, as have the rest of the members of the entourage. They turn now and face the crowd, and you can hear those cheers, I'm sure. These ladies out here can make as much noise as... Any man in the house. The king smiles pleasantly. The queen chats with the Honorable Saul Bloom from New York. Everyone is smiling. The photographers are waiting anxiously for them to turn around so that more pictures can be taken. Ambassador Lindsay seems to be in his glory. He's, he really is smiling very pleasantly. And now, once again, they come up these 37 steps, the Marines standing at attention. Her Majesty smiling very, very quickly. The king just a little more somber face now. Possibly he realized the historic moment of this day. Now, as they pass from the steps, they go to the portico. The Speaker of the House and Vice President Garner have moved inside. The entourage moves on in. The King and the Queen at this very moment, ladies and gentlemen, are stepping into the rotunda of the United States Capitol building. From Washington, the King and Queen went to the New York Fair and then Hyde Park. But of all the broadcasts which described their progress through the American countryside, perhaps none had the color of the one from the little New Jersey town of Red Sand. This typical small American city turned out in force to welcome the passage through it of the King and Queen. On the station platform describing the change by the royal visitors from a train to an automobile was a mutual announcer. Unconsciously, in his brief picture of the scene, this announcer gave voice to the thoughts of all Americans who might have seen the royal couple and been captivated by their simplicity. Uh, an American layman. How charmingly informal the king can be. Uh, you know, from childhood you read fairy stories and whatnot, and you expect uh, they get carried around on letters, I imagine. Or, you know what I mean, some fairy story nonsense like that, but... Here they are, just people, and very, very wonderfully distinguished-looking people. And now the king starts to review the company. The queen is behind. She walks at her pleasure some distance behind, not actually doing the reviewing. It's the king himself, with two, three soldiers, walks down the line. The queen follows slowly, not really inspecting, just walking. As the days went by, and the crisis that was slowly building in Europe stayed hidden behind the headlines... Americans found home affairs to engage their attention. The planet Mars, ironically enough, made one of its periodic approaches to the Earth, coming as near our planet as it ever does. Millions saw the pink star hanging low in the east, and WOR's Special Features Division tried a unique experiment. No one knows whether it is possible to send a radio signal through the dense atmospheric layers surrounding the Earth. WOR engineers tried to do it and ambitiously set about preparing an attempt to transmit those signals directly to Mars, hoping they would strike that planet and bouncing off return again to Earth. 
The attempt was broadcast to listeners throughout the country, and many of them will remember the tense scene at the transmitter when the WOR announcer told them all was ready. Now, Engineer Charles Singer will press a key, and the dots and dashes that you will hear will be picked up as they are transmitted from the special antenna beamed at Mars. All right, here we go. through the Kennelly Heaviside layer, a magnetic layer some 50 miles to 100 miles above the Earth, it is reasonable to believe that they will continue on through space and strike Mars. Across the country, people listened, and then the minutes ticked off, and the time came for a signal to return. All right, I'm going to take a look at the clock now and see how much more time we must wait before our six minutes and 28 seconds are consumed, and we may expect to hear the signal flash back to Earth if we're lucky. How much more time must it? 45 seconds to go before we should hear the start of the signal as it was sent out from here just a few minutes ago. However, as Dr. Fisher pointed out, before we started this experiment, that we cannot be too sure of the accuracy of the length of time. It might vary one way or another by a few seconds. So let's pause now and wait. You'll be patient and see if we hear the signal return. Experiment, the signal failed to return, and so we're going to conclude this broadcast in which we have attempted to send the signal to Mars and back to Earth. The attempt was a failure, but Mutual, hopeful of succeeding someday, announced it would try again. Now to get ahead of our story, the baseball season drew to a close and Mutual exclusively broadcast the epic of the great American game. People in this country, thankful that they were hearing the crack of bats instead of rifles, listened to the nation's outstanding sports announcer, Red Barber, describing the highlight of the World Series. Big Paul Derringer's just handed over his first base on balls, the deliberate pass to Joe DiMaggio, now trotting down the first base line. And here in the last of the ninth inning at Yankee Stadium in this first game of the 1939 World Series... It's all tied up in one run apiece, one for the Reds and one for the Yankees. But the pressure is on the Reds, a field now behind their gallant Kentuckian, Derringer, who's pitched his head and his arm and his heart out against the mighty Bronx Bummers. With one man out, Charlie Keller, freshman right fielder for the champions, just caught hold of a high pitch and pulled it high and far out into the right center field. Harry Kraft started over from center after a slight hitch and breaking. Ivan Goodwin went back and over, looked for the ball, then went on into deep right center and barely got his glove on the drive, which went for a rousing triple, perhaps a tie-turning triple. And now with one out, Derringer has men on first and third, and Bill Dickey is coming up. And Dickey's to be Pitts, too. The infield positions tell us this before Big Bill even steps into the box. 
And here's the clutch that decides this battle, and probably the entire fate of the 1939 championship. For if the Reds can't win, the way Oom Paul's been throwing that rock today, how can they ever hope to beat the Yankees? The burning question at the moment, can Derringer, who's worked so effectively and efficiently all afternoon, pitch out of this jam? The Red Lake fans have their fingers crossed, and all eyes are now watching that towering strong armor as he tows the rubber. The Yankee fans are happily buzzing. They're confident that the money-playing Bill Dickey will once more be their sweet William. The baseball people know that if Dickey gets Calarova, the series is decided almost beyond doubt. Derringer gets his sign from Lombardi. Maggio steps down off first. Charlie Keller, the important runner, leads off third with Art Fletcher coaching him. The same Fletcher who cannily sent Joe Gordon home in the fifth inning when Berger threw Darwin's double belatedly to second base. Dickey stands fairly erect. Left-hand hitter, slightly knock-kneed. Grips his bat long. Derringer sets. Takes another look at his runners. Throws. Dickey swings. It's a sharp line drive out in the center field. It's a base hit. Keller scores, and the Yankees win this first game 2-1. to one. Just as interesting to many Americans as the World Series was the spirited controversy over the President's decision to advance the date of Thanksgiving Day this year. In a special mutual program, representative citizens echoed the pros and cons of the heated debate. Against the change was a national calendar manufacturer. As a representative of the calendar industry, I have made a protest to the President of the United States regarding the losses that will be sustained by our industry in the event that he will not rescind the proclamation changing the date of Thanksgiving. The calendar industry have made up 250 million calendar pads for 1940 with the Thanksgiving date identified as has been the custom the last Thursday in the month, last Thursday in November. And if this change must be made, these will result in a total loss to our industry, as the customer will not accept the finished calendar with Thanksgiving date incorrect. This law should be taken into consideration. For the change was a Yonkers housewife, Mrs. Eva Golda. Extra week's salary that people will get between the new Thanksgiving and Christmas will mean extra money and more spending power in the hands of women shopping for Christmas. Second, I'm in favor of the earlier Thanksgiving day because Thanksgiving is always such a large affair that I think the longer you wait before another fish feasts, the better. It takes a long time to get an appetite up for one turkey after having one. You know, after Thanksgiving, you're living on the remains of a turkey for at least a week. You have warmed over turkey and turkey in every other style. And then there's a week gone by, and you only have another two weeks or so to put on an appetite for another one for Christmas. I think the more time in between, the more turkeys women will buy. Fundamentally, every day should be a day of Thanksgiving, and the one that's set aside as a holiday should be the one that benefits the majority of our people. Mutual Special Features Division is presenting 1939 in review, an hour's program of the news highlights of the past year with actual recordings made at the time, and a special commentary by Raymond Graham Swing. We shall resume after a brief pause for station identification. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. W-O-R, Newark. Now we must go back to midsummer, 
For though Americans were living their own lives, following their own work and their own pleasures, the crisis in Europe was moving inexorably forward. It remained below the surface in July and early August, so that many Europeans hoped that it could be put off till next year. But Hitler had set his policy, and the object of that policy was Poland. From Warsaw, Poland's capital, Foreign Minister Beck spoke to the world, telling it of Poland's determination not to yield to the demands of Hitler. Nazi Germany, following the campaign that ended with the annexation of Austria, the campaign that had led to the subjugation of Czechoslovakia, now demanded Danzig and part of the corridor. In the background was the same propaganda of hate, the same accusation of atrocities, the same border incidents. To Hitler's demand, Colonel Beck said no. Britain and France, no longer in the mood to appease, had decided that aggression must cease. Beck was encouraged to stand firm. Poland was promised help against Nazi aggression. Premier Daladier had made his last trip to Munich, and now he spoke for France and urged all Frenchmen to unite. In London, Lord Halifax, never an ardent champion of appeasement, became more and more the spokesman of a policy of firmness. He announced Britain's determination to stand with its ally, France. ...is to be removed. I repeat that there must be some certainty about the future of Europe, and that is why we feel obliged to resist attempts to alter the map of Europe or by constant appeals to press. There are some who say that the fate of European nations is no concern of ours, and that we should not, not look far beyond our own frontiers. But surely they forget that in failing to uphold the liberties of others, we run great risk of betraying the principle of liberty itself, and with it, our own freedom and independence. So it came to open defiance, each side hoping the other would retreat. Germany and Poland filled the air with accusations against each other. From Germany, mutual listeners heard about the misdeeds committed against Germans in Poland. Every German is well aware of the fact that now the time has come to eradicate one of the troubled spots created by the Versailles dictates. It is with keen indignation that the German people are listening to the report of the terrorist acts committed by the Poles in ever-growing proportion, and to the comprehensive military preparations taken by the Polish general staff in the districts along the German border. The cowardly attack which has previously reported was made by Polish frontier troops upon a Baltic patrol near Tropot, and which in the stormtrooper Hermann Rush was killed, and policeman Duran seriously injured, occurred 500 yards west of the Steinfleece frontier barrier on Danzig territory. Poland answered these stories, and from Warsaw came the Polish version of what was happening. Finally, some people shrugged their shoulders and said, 
There is so much for scandal going on on both sides that it will be safer not to trust anybody. And the real aim of German propaganda was not to Conflict drawing closer to open violence, Britain and France had tried to complete the one relationship which might have staved off war. They sought assurance of the help of the Soviet Union. The Russians set their price, a fairly free hand in the Baltic, and they were skeptical about Poland, welcoming their aid. The negotiations dragged. Then, with lightning swiftness, the Soviet Union and Germany turned to each other. The Nazis, arch-foes of the communists. The communists, arch-foes of the Nazis, joined hands. And as the hands clasped, the world taken wholly unawares heard from Berlin the news of the pact between the two nations. In the case of the non-aggression pact between Germany and the Soviet Union, a decision of the greatest international importance had to be taken. Neither country wished to live in enmity with the other, on the contrary, they desired friendly relations with each other. The non-aggression pact had put an end to the hostility between them. The two greatest states of Europe had decided to remove the threats of war in their reciprocal relations and to pursue a policy of peace so far as their two countries were concerned. Now Britain and France were without an ally in Eastern Europe. Now Hitler felt secure in taking what he wanted of Poland. Britain and France still hoped for negotiations, but insisted that they be free, that Poland enjoy the status of an equal. If there was to be peace, it could not be another Munich. In Rome, Mussolini made an eleventh-hour attempt to bring peace. with the Duce, the new Pope, President Roosevelt, King Leopold of the Belgians, Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands, had issued peace pleas. But every sign pointed to Hitler's mind being set. On the night of Thursday, August 31st, the German foreign minister showed to the British ambassador a 14-point proposal for negotiations. But he said it was already too late. Instead, from the German radio were suddenly flashed ominous warnings, first to airplanes, then to ships at sea. Canceling all previous orders, the German Air Ministry prohibits all air traffic exercised by German or foreign aircraft over the German territory. This order takes immediate effect. It does, however, not apply to aircraft employed by the German fighting forces or by the German government. Aircraft acting contrary to this order run the risk to be fired upon. All vessels in the Baltic Sea are warned in their own interest not to enter the area between 18 degrees and 5 minutes east, equal to the German border frontier, and 20 degrees east to the eastern of Bristol or Lighthouse, and beyond 35 degrees north. Then, then from London came a sudden announcement that Hitler was ready to move. 
midnight, New York time, Americans heard London calling. Tuned by the official Berlin wireless station at 5.40 this morning that the Führer had issued a proclamation to the army. The proclamation says that Poland has refused the peaceful settlement of relations which had hit the desire and has appealed to arms. Germans in Poland were persecuted and a series of violations of the frontier, intolerable to a great power, proved that Poland was no longer willing to respect the frontier of the Reich. In order to put an end to this lunacy, says the Führer's proclamation, I had no other choice than to meet force with force from now on. Before Americans were awake the next morning, the invasion of Poland had begun. Danzig was taken, Gdynia blockaded, West Poland was throbbing with German mechanized forces. Warsaw, Katowice, and other Polish cities were bombed and fired. From the Polish radio in Warsaw, with the actual sound of Nazi airplanes overhead, came the first feeble listings of the damage done by the invaders. On September the 3rd, German planes bombed a number of villages, escaped in small settlements. It is therefore obvious that the Germans bombed the totally unarmed rural inhabitants without any hesitation. The following cases of bombing of villages have been recorded according to reports from the Warsaw province. In the village of those castles near Kedivice, 11 bombs were dropped. Many have been killed and wounded, and a number of houses were burnt down. In the village Kutschka of the Tomasov Mazowiecki district, three bombs were dropped, and as a result, two people killed and two heavily wounded. In the village Borta, near Palenica, 15 miles from Warsaw... By five in the morning, New York time, Adolf Hitler was ready to announce that the die had been cast. In the decisive speech to the Reichstag, the Führer, wearing his World War Army uniform, acknowledged that Germany was engaged in a conflict with Poland. Britain and France knew what they would do. From London came an immediate indication. If the proclamation to the German people by Herr Hitler, which has already been announced, should mean, as it would seem to mean, that Germany has declared war on Poland, it can be stated on the highest authority that Great Britain and France are inflexibly determined to fulfill to the uttermost their obligations to the Polish government. Two days went by. A final attempt was made to induce Hitler to recall his troops. Mussolini intervened with a last peace proposal. Hitler's forces advanced as he looked over that peace offer. Britain insisted on an answer. It failed to come. And in the morning of September 3rd, Americans heard the tragic words of Neville Chamberlain from London. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently 
this country is at war with Germany. So Britain went to war. The Americans that day heard King George VI call to the dominions and the empire. It is to this high purpose that I now call my people at home and my people across the sea who will make our cause their own. I ask them to stand calm and firm and united in this time of trial. The task will be hard. There may be dark days ahead and war can no longer be confined to the battlefield. But we can only do the light as we see the light and reverently commit our cause to God. If one and all we keep resolutely faithful to it, ready for whatever service or sacrifice it may demand, and then, with God's help, we shall prevail. The first reply from a mem member of the Commonwealth was from Mackenzie King, Prime Minister of Canada. People of Canada will, I know, face the days of stress and strain which lie ahead with calm and resolute courage. There is no home in Canada, no family, and no individual whose fortunes and freedom are not bound up in the present struggle. I appeal to my fellow Canadians to unite in a national effort to save from destruction all that makes life itself worth living and to preserve for... ready for whatever service or sacrifice it may demand. And then, with God's help, we shall prevail. The first reply from a mem member of the Commonwealth was from Mackenzie King, Prime Minister of Canada. The people of Canada will, I know, face the days of stress and strain which lie ahead with calm and resolute courage. There is no home in Canada, no family, and no individual whose fortunes and freedom are not bound up in the present struggle. I appeal to my fellow Canadians to unite in a national effort to save from destruction all that makes life itself worth living and to preserve for future generations those liberties and institutions which others have bequeathed to us. France followed Britain with Premier Daladier speaking for a united French nation. Chacun de nous est à son Sur le sol de France, sur cette terre de liberté, le respect de la dignité humaine Trouve un de ces derniers refuges, vous associerez tous vos efforts dans un profond sentiment d'union et de fraternité pour le salut de la patrie. Vive la France!
Americans now ask themselves what it would mean to them. On that same Sunday night, the President of the United States spoke to the nation. This nation will remain a neutral nation. But I cannot ask that every American remain neutral in thought as well. Even a neutral has a right to take account of facts. Even a neutral cannot be asked to close his mind or close his conscience. I have said not once, but many times, that I have seen war and that I hate war. I say that again and again. I hope the United States will keep out of this war. I believe that it will. And I give you assurance and reassurance that every effort of your government will be directed toward that end. As long as it remains within my power to prevent, there will be no blackout of peace in the United States. So the War of Nerves, the White War, had changed to the Crimson War, the War of Bloodshed and Death. France manned the Maginot Line, the Germans the West Wall. The British Navy imposed the blockade. Germany counterattacked with submarines, mines, and bombers. After the collapse of Poland, Germany on the one side, the Allies on the other, poised but didn't strike. Total war was not unleashed. The war of nerves continued to be the war of nerves in a grimmer form, save for ill-fated merchantmen, enemy and neutral alike, and for occasional blows of actual war. The Royal Oak and the Courageous were sunk. The Admiral Graf Spee was battered and scuttled. And then on the edge of Europe, a conflict between the Soviet Union and Finland broke into total war that shook the world. In the United States, the first preoccupation after the coming of war had been the new problems of neutrality and centered on the highly contentious issue of the embargo, which finally was lifted. Mutual took listeners to the House of Representatives on the day the President addressed the special session of Congress. As we listen once again to the words of the Chief Executive, we turn our backs on the fateful year 1939. I should like to be able to offer the hope that the shadow over the world might swiftly pass. I cannot. The facts compel my stating with candor that darker periods may lie ahead. The disaster is not of our making. No act of ours engendered the forces which assault the foundations of civilization. And yet, we find ourselves affected to the core. Our currents of commerce are changing. Our minds are filled with new problems. Our position in world affairs has already been altered. In such circumstances, our policy must be to appreciate 
in the deepest sense, the true American interest. Rightly considered, this interest is not selfish. Destiny first made us, with our sister nations on this hemisphere, joint heir of European culture. Fate seems now to compel us to assume the task of helping to maintain in the Western world a senator wherein that civilization may be kept alive. The peace, the integrity, and the safety of the Americans, these must be kept firm and serene. In a period when it is sometimes said that free discussion is no longer compatible with national safety, May you, by your deeds, show the world that we of the United States are one people, of one mind, one spirit, one clear resolution, walking before God in the light of the living. Mutual Special Features Division has presented 1939 in Review, a resume of outstanding news moments of the past year with recordings of historic events made at the time, and a special commentary delivered by Raymond Graham Swing. This program was written by Alvin M. Giuseppe, Jr., produced under the direction of Robert Louis Shea. We wish to thank the British Broadcasting Corporation for permission to rebroadcast English transmissions used on this program. In 1940, as in 1939, Mutual will continue to cover the news of all the world as it happens. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.